0: I want to honor your time. It's not like we don't have plenty of stuff to cover. So, everybody, everybody okay with Gehenna? We're okay? They we're okay? Just just to, state, just to state something that sometimes can get, obviously when I was reading the English, the English word is hell. And every time the English word was hell, when it was Gehenna in the original language, I was saying Gehenna. You won't, you won't open your Bible and find it. You won't open your Bible and find the word Gehenna. You'll find the Valley of Hinnom, which means which is Gehenna. But but in in the New Testament in particular, you'll find the word Hell. They translate the word Gehenna Hell, and and so. But it was actually they also translate Hades that way too. So, all right. I hope you were sufficiently blessed by that. I promise you, it's going to get better and better and better. That was very very basic. All right. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna keep going tonight. And uh, where we leave off tonight, we'll just pick up tomorrow. You're not going to want to miss one night, because they're going to all build on themselves, and uh, we'll do well. So Exodus chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. It says this, And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. I'm going to preach on this Sunday morning. So I have come down to rescue them. The word "rescue" there is the word, same word we get the word "salvation from," or "saved." I have come down to save them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. So so the journey of this group of people, let me just catch you up to this point, okay? There's this guy named Abraham. And Abraham um, was a sun worshiper in Ur, very wealthy. God shows up to him at like 90 years old or something. And he says, I want you to leave everything you've worked your whole life for, and I want you to go someplace and Abraham says, sure, where am I going? And God says, I'm not telling. You're just going to go. And Abraham says, well, is there anything you can tell me you want me to do? And God says, yes, as a matter of fact, I'm glad you mentioned that. I want you to circumcise yourself with that rock. Which would have lost me right <laughs> there. Like, don't miss. hello <laughs> <laughs> which would actually have probably at the end of it been gracious because, can you imagine, like, they were like 100, okay? And their, their actual ages are escaping me right now, but like really old. And if you look at a trek of where they walked, it was like 2,000 miles. So I don't know how far it is from the top of the South Island to the bottom of the South Island, but I don't think it's 2,000 miles. So it's, it's a long way, okay? 2,000 miles. Can you imagine 2,000 miles on the back of a camel (laughs) with a 100-year-old wife? Can you imagine that? How many times would she have said, are you sure, Abraham? (laughs) Yes, I'm sure. Are you sure you're sure? Yes, I'm sure I'm sure. Are you sure that you're sure that you're sure? Yes, I'm sure that I'm sure that I'm sure. How sure are you? Woman, I'm so sure I circumcised myself with a rock. Well, you win. (laughs) So this guy ends up someplace, and he has a son named Isaac. And then God tells him to kill that son. And then God spares the son. And then that son had a son named Jacob. And so three generations later, the promise that he would be a great nation is still only one person, which is a good principle that God's not in a hurry. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad God's not in a hurry? Sometimes we want God to be in a hurry, but if God was in a hurry because he doesn't change, he'd have to be in a hurry all the time. And, and if God was in a hurry with you, we'd, it'd be a disaster. And if God was in a hurry with me, thank God he's gracious and kind and patient. He is the compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love God, huh? Like, thank God he isn't in a hurry. Thank God he could choose people called James and John, the sons of thunder. You don't get that nickname going to Sunday school, <laughs> and he molded them into something. That Thank God that he chose people like Moses who was a premeditated murderer. I looked this way and that, and seeing no one, I killed the man and hit him in the sand. The problem was the next day the sand shifted, and this guy's leg sticking up out of the sand. <laughs> God used him to write the Torah. God uses messed up people. Isn't that good? Why is that good? Because we're all messed up. <laughs> no perfect people allowed. Like the heroes of the faith, like the guy, it's almost like if you read the heroes of the faith from Hebrews 11, if you read that chapter, it's like everybody to be a hero to God, you have to be really jacked up beyond all recognition at one point in your life, don't you? Like, um, like Abraham gave his wife to Pharaoh's harem, and he made it in that list. If CNN and the internet would have been around back then, what would you have said about Abraham? How could he be saved and act like that? Yet he was the hero of the faith. If Abraham, actually, if Abraham was available to preach here next Sunday, would you let him or would you talk about his past? Mm. Um, Isaac did something similar. David commits adultery, gets the woman pregnant, decides to kill her husband to cover it up, kills 17 men in one day trying to cover up one thing. Um, God said you'll do. Mm. If David was available to preach here next Sunday, would you let him, or would you talk about what he did? If CNN and the internet would have been around back then, how would you have responded to a man who already had 700 women at his disposal, taking the one that wasn't his? What would you say about him? Would you say, hmm, there's a man after God's own heart, or hm, mm, or would we say something else? Samson was sleeping with prostitutes on his wedding night because he got depressed because his best man stole his wife. And those are the kinds of people God chose. (laughs) So God is not in a hurry with us. So Abraham ends up with Isaac, and Isaac ends up with Jacob. And Jacob has 12 children. So now we finally are getting some um, multiplication here. And those children sell one of their brothers to Egypt. And um, then there's a famine, and they end up in front of him because they need food and, and, and so they come down and, and Joseph has, is now a powerful person and he gives his family the best land in Egypt. And then they multiply because there was no prescription birth control back then. <clears throat> they multiply and multiply and multiply and multiply until the point where they um, intimidated Pharaoh. So Pharaoh decides to do something horrible. He decides to kill all the baby boys. And he decides to enslave them. And so for 430 years, they were enslaved to this man named Pharaoh. And really, they were just living where their brother had given them the land. And so they cry out to God because all of them were in a covenant with this God named God Almighty. His name was El Shaddai, God Almighty. He was the the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The problem with God Almighty was he wasn't doing anything about it he's god almighty but he's not doing anything about it and finally in exodus chapter 3 he says i finally i'm i'm hearing the suffering of my children in in slavery in egypt and i'm going to come down and save them but but in this story it's just the beginning it's not the end that to us to get saved to get moved out of slavery and into freedom it's not the end of the story it's just the beginning That that, that in this story, which is about us, it isn't just about people who were slaves and now they're free. This is about me, and this is about you, and this is about our journey from slavery to freedom. And our journey from slavery to freedom only starts with an encounter with God. It ends with something far, far broader than that. In in, in Exodus 19, verse 3 to 6, this same group of people, and, and God is talking to them, And he says, then Moses went up to God and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the house of Jacob. And you're to tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have I seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. The word there is segula. I'm gonna talk about that tomorrow. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. In other words, you're not just going to be saved. You are going to be a kingdom of people who shows the rest of the world what God looks like. Isaiah 49.6, it is a light thing that I have forgiven you. I will go one step further and make you a light to the Gentiles. That God's biggest idea was to have me and to have you be replications of him to the whole world. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, it says this. You'll memorize this in Sunday school. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable unto him. Now, who wrote Romans? Paul. Paul was a rabbi. Where would Paul get his, con- his, his connotation of a holy and acceptable sacrifice from? From the book of Leviticus. So in the book of Leviticus 1, 2, and 3, it says, for these are the sacrifices which are holy and acceptable unto God. And three things had to happen for a sacrifice to be holy and acceptable. Their head had to be cut off, their legs had to be cut off, and their inner parts had to be clean. So those three things. So Paul, who had memorized Leviticus by age six, is saying this. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice to have your head cut off, your legs cut off, and your inner parts clean. For this is a reasonable act of worship. Wow. And We're going to talk about form and function later. But, but in this case, let's just Think function for a second. The function of having your head cut off. What is that? What is, what is the function of someone's head? It's their thinking, their authority. If I was to say you're the head of your house, it doesn't mean you have the largest head in your house. It, it means that you are the authority there. So, so Paul's saying, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you lose your authority and grow up into him who is our head, Ephesians chapter 5. That we all as one body grow up into him who is the head. That this is all about me and it's all about you becoming replications of Jesus Christ. And the only way to do that is to lose our head and take on his, take on his. Jesus talked about this in one scripture. He talked about his head. He said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head Foxes do not sleep in holes. Foxes have babies in holes. Birds do not sleep in nests. Birds sleep in trees. The only thing a bird does in a nest is lay eggs. So Jesus is saying foxes have a place to reproduce themselves. Birds have a place to reproduce themselves. But as of yet, the Son of Man does not have a body to put his head on in order to reproduce himself. See, this is all about, this is not about just you getting saved. I love, there's this song I heard recently. I think it was written by um, Joel Osteen's guy. Um, can't think of his name. Having a brain moment. He, anyway, Joel Osteen's guy. You know, you know Joel Osteen, right? You're a champion. God loves you. Yeah, you don't let that devil get in your head and get you all negative. You tell him to go on back to hell where he came from. Me and Victoria, we was talking the other day about what daddy you say about y'all. I love him. Anyway, okay. So he's built the biggest church in America. I just love him. <laughs> um, uh, but he, he wrote this song called "Say So," and, and what is what the the words to the song goes like this? What does it mean to be saved? Is it more than just a prayer we pray? More than just a way to heaven? What does it mean to be his, to be called in his likeness, to know that we have a purpose, to be salt and light to the world, to be salt and light to the world, for let the redeemed of the Lord say so. In other words, the best way for the redeemed of the Lord to say so is not necessarily to get a bunch of tracks and go out and tell people they'll go to hell without Jesus. The best way for the redeemed of the Lord to say so is to actually meet people's needs first. And then it gives us credibility because we are replications of Jesus Christ to grow up into him who is the head. That we are called to be a king of a priest. God is using us to replicate him. We are the flesh and blood message to the world. This isn't anything new. Exodus chapter four, verse 16. Um, um, Pharaoh, God tells Moses, you will be like God to Pharaoh. You'll, you'll be a God-like one to him. In other words, you're going to be my voice, you're going to be my mouth, you're going to be my hands, you're going to be my feet. I could do it myself, but I'd rather use you. And God's plan hasn't changed. That the girl at KFC, who is the hands and feet of Jesus to her? You and me. That the girl at Subway making your sandwich, who is the hands and feet of Jesus. Who is the hands and feet of Jesus to your husband? Who's the hands and feet of Jesus to your wife? Who's the hand and feet of Jesus to your coworkers? It is us, for we are called to be the body of Christ, a part of God's biggest idea, to be replications of him to the whole world by bringing heaven to earth instead of hell. That's what we are called to be. And I think in that there's a couple of, 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 of movements, there's a couple of, um, of transitions that we have to make. That as a body of Christ, we have to transition from doctrine. Doctrine is good. All of these things I'm writing are good. Doctrine is good. It is good to know your word. It is good to know what it says. It's good to have doctrine, sound doctrine. But we have a real problem when doctrine turns in from doctrine into a statement that says, I know everything that you don't know. Doctrine misses the point if it ends at doctrine. That we have to move from doctrine to yoke. There's a huge difference between doctrine and yoke. A yoke was a rabbi's way of life, it was his way of interpreting scripture, it was his doctrine lived out. It was, it was a rabbi's teachings on how to talk to your wife, how to talk to your husband, how to discipline your children, how to give, how to receive, it, it, how to worship, how to, how to walk a daily walkout, how to respond in adversity. A rabbi's yoke was his way of living. One rabbi came along and he said his yoke was easy and his burden was light. He was a rabbi with shmika, which meant he could make up his own yoke. A new rabbi with Shemekah, the word would have gotten around, and he would have drawn crowds of, say, five to 10,000 people in a city without any cars or roads or things like that, like we would have. People would have come from all over the country to hear this new rabbi's yoke because maybe his yoke was easier to live than the rabbi they were currently under. It wasn't just doctrine. It was a way of life. Two totally different things. How many of you realize that it is perfectly possible to believe in something that you do not care about? We cannot do that as a body. It has to be yoke. But you cannot care about something that you don't believe in. Like, let, me ask, let me say it this way. How many of you believe with all of your heart? I'm not tricking you. This should be all of us. How many of you believe with all of your heart that God has forgiven you of every sin? We believe that with all our heart. That's, what's that called? Doctrine. That's called doctrine, and that's good. We should believe that. But how many of you who believe that God has forgiven you of every sin, how many of you have felt guilty in the last week? So, so you mean you believe you're innocent, but you still feel guilty. <laughs> what's wrong with that picture? Because how many of you know if you feel guilty, you'll act guilty? If the truth is innocence, then the truth is innocence. How many of us would believe, don't raise your hand if this, this is rhetorical, because if you know your Bible, this is, yes. How many of you would believe that Jesus honors taking care of the poor? Of course we do, right? We believe that with all our heart. That's called doctrine. But how many of us have a yoke that honors taking care of the poor first with all of our finances? That's the difference between doctrine and yoke. How many of us believe that Jesus said, don't slander and say false things or true things about other people that aren't edifying? Matter of fact, Jesus said things like, don't let any corrupt communication come out of your mouth. In other words, everything that comes out of your mouth, edify. Jesus actually said it one more way. He said, if it would hurt you, don't do it to somebody else. Mm. That's called what? doctrine, but yoke is living it out, actually caring about what Jesus said, actually living it. That's what will give the church credibility. Wasn't it the Dalai Lama that says that he liked Christ, but he didn't like Christians? Hmm... That is the difference between doctrine and yoke. It is perfectly possible to believe in what Jesus said and not live it. How many of you believe that Jesus looked at someone caught in the act of adultery and said, I do not condemn you? In John chapter 8, it says it. Jesus, dealing with someone caught in the act of adultery, I do not condemn you. But how many of us could look at somebody and say, I do not condemn you? The difference between doctrine and yoke. How many of us believe, there's a hundred examples to this. How many of us believe that Jesus said, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will have enough worries of itself? (laughs) How many of you believe that? (laughs) But how many of us have a worry problem? (laughs) Is it doctrine Or is it yoke? How we respond to people. Is it doctrine or is it yoke? Jesus was the compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love God. What we believe in terms of doctrine and yoke will determine what we bind and what we loose. Let me be very clear about this. I am a total believer in deliverance. Folks have demons, and it needs to go. Absolutely. And in today's language, to say I bind a devil is perfectly appropriate because that's English, and that's we—that's how we use it, and it's used appropriately. In first century Hebrew culture, binding and loosing didn't have anything to do with devils. Jesus was the king devil caster outer guy. Like... Jesus, I I got to sit on a plane with a rabbi from LA who is an expert in Kabbalah, okay? And I love this kind of stuff, so I'm just sitting there with him. And um, he goes, you follow Jesus? I said, yes. He said, he was the greatest Kabbalist ever. Now, I, I don't have to agree with him to have a conversation with him. And I said, oh, tell me about that. What makes him that way? He said, that guy went around and built a reputation for setting people free. I said, yes. I said, how did he do that? He said, he threw devils off of people. He said, do you realize that in those days, very few people would even attempt that? That's why Jesus ran across people who'd been demon-possessed for 18 years and stuff, and he's just going, oh, yeah, that's enough of that. Jesus mastered setting people free. Jesus, I am all for that. But binding and loosing had everything to do with yoke. Binding and loosing had to do with what you allow in your yoke or what you forbidden in your yoke. Jesus said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So what does that mean? If you think about this, what we bind is what we forbid people to do. What we loose is what we free people to do. And that is based on our yoke, okay? And what we bind on earth does bind people's consciousness in heaven. It does. But let me prove it to you. My granny. Um, my granny is a godly woman who grew up in just a wonderful, weird system. My grandmother has never cut her hair in her life. She's 80. I think she's like 108 or something. But she's never cut her hair in her life. It's all pulled up into a bun that pulls all the wrinkles out of her face. (laughs) She's never worn slacks in her life. Like to my grandmother, to cut your hair meant you would go to hell. So, hell, hell. Hell, remember hell's about somebody else to them. It's, uh, yeah. T- to color your hair is like a different level of hell. <laughs> my, my grandmother, my, my grandmother has, has never worn slacks, never worn jewelry, never worn makeup, never cut her hair in her life. A- 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 and I w- never went to the movies. Like, if I go to the movies to this day, she'll pray the whole time I'm in there that Jesus would not come back while I'm in the movies because he would never go into a movie theater to get me out of it. (laughs) I I was messing with my granny once. I said, Granny, let's get you, it's her birthday. I said, let's get you all made up. Let's get you some jewelry, get you some makeup, get you a nice hairdo, get you a good outfit. She said, oh, no, babe. I'd hate to send myself to hell and maybe someone else too. I said, how would you send somebody else to hell? She said, well, I'd hate to give a man a lustful thought. (laughs) It was like, lustful thought, no worries there. Like nothing's in the right place. When you create a system that binds a woman to guilt around having a lustful thought for a man at 90 years old, you have created slavery. (laughs) And, And the whole point of salvation was setting people free. It was not forgiving sins. Forgiveness of sins was the start. The finish was that sin won't have mastery over anyone anymore. That salvation to a Hebrew person was not about getting to go to heaven. It was about being slave driver free today. And you know whose hands are in that? Us. And it has to do with our yoke. Do do you realize that the world around you looks at how you live and determines binding and loosing from that? Like what's okay and what's not okay. As teachers, if there's any pastors in the room, there's double responsibility because what we say actually binds people to certain things and looses them from it. Let me give you an example. Is it a sin to go to the movies? Is it a sin to go to the movies? Most people are saying no. But the answer to that is, is it depends on what's been bound to you. Is it a sin for my grandmother to go to the movies? Absolutely, yes, because if she goes, she'd be being rebellious to what's been bound to her. Yeah. Is it a sin to cut your hair? No, but to my grandmother it is, because she'd be going against what has been bound to her. That that our yoke actually binds people to certain things. Do you realize the power that's on your life to free people up or bind people up? And we need to be asking the question, do we bind people to what Jesus binded them to and loose people from what Jesus loosed them from and just trust that his way is the best way for our life? Are we replications of Jesus? We've become, we have, as a culture in the church, we've become so hard. Stuff that Jesus would allow, we don't even allow. Do you realize that there are churches in the world that according to their constitution and bylaws would never have David preach in their pulpits? Matter of fact, I had a pastor once in a pretty big city at a pastor's meeting stand up and say this out loud. If King David was coming to preach in my city, I would stand against him because of what he did. And I had to refrain from calling him a fool lest I be in danger of Gehenna. Mm It's binding and it's loosing. What are we as a church? I assume most of you go to church here. What are we as a church binding people from and loosing people to? Are we loosing people to act in such ways that is destructive and bringing Gehenna? Or are we binding them to things that Jesus would never bind them to? Because this creates faith. What we can believe for. There's this pastor in America that gave this illustration that helped me so much about faith. I want to end tonight with it and then we'll pick up with this tomorrow, okay? Um, But this helped me so much. And if it helped me, I'm thinking it might help you. But this pastor in America, when he did this, I was like, that helped me so much with faith. Let me share it with you, okay? okay? This is Joe. And that's Sally, and Joe and Sally are stuck in a two-dimensional world. They live in two dimensions, and in a two-dimensional world, what is that? It's a rectangle, What's that? A circle. So that's a rectangle and that's a circle, and in a two-dimensional world, it cannot be both. It can't be both. It's either a rectangle or a circle. It has to be one or the other. You can't, it, it's, that's a rectangle, that's a circle. For me to get up here and say, this could be a rectangle in certain situations, cannot be in a two-dimensional world. In a two-dimensional world, this has to be a rectangle. But in a three-dimensional world, if all we do is add one dimension, is that a circle? Yes. Is that a rectangle? Yes so in a three-dimensional world if we just add one dimension they're stuck in two dimensions if we just add one dimension it can actually be both so what would happen if i was god and i'm trying to communicate now i live in four dimensions so what if me in four dimensions tried to communicate with joe and sally who are stuck in two so what if what if to communicate with them what if i took my ring off and I said, I know. I'm going to get their attention. I'm going to slide this ring through their world. So I slide it through their world. In two dimensions, what would they see? They would just see a dot that turns into two dots, that turns into three, that does. It would just look like that. That was a very bad ring, but it, you get the picture. It would just look like that. And so Joe goes, Sally, do you see that? Sally goes, yeah. Yeah. That was nine dots. And Joe says, no, that's the ring of shame, man. And she goes, no, you're crazy. That's nine dots. He goes, no, I'm telling you. That's the ring of shame. So what if I wanted to mess with them further? And I took my hand and I stuck my hand through their world. What would they see? They're stuck in two dimensions. What would they see? they would see five dots that enter at slightly different times with slightly different circumferences at slightly different angles. And those five dots would be, cut, would be followed by dashes. It's a two-dimensional world, remember? So, so Sally goes, did you see that, Joe? There's five dots just appeared, followed by a series of dashes. And Joe says, no, man was the hand of shame, man. So what if I wanted to mess with them even further? And I took my face and put it really close. And Joe says, do you feel that? It's almost like it's the face of shame. And Sally goes, no, just got a little warmer, that's all. He goes, no, I can sense his presence. Now that's what it would be like if a four-dimensional creature tried to communicate with a two-dimensional world. That's what it would be like. How many dimensions does God live in? Thousands? So what would happen if a thousand-dimensional person is trying to communicate with four-dimensional creatures? And those four-dimensional creatures are so proud that they think they can figure God out. And so they call themselves theologians, and they go, it's predestination. It's predestination. It's predestination. God predestined us. He predestined us. And then there's a whole other group of theologians that go, it's free will. It's free will. It's free will. It's got to be free will. And the, No, it's got to be predestination. No, it's got to be free will. And God's like, um, could be both, maybe. Like, if we just add, say, one dimension to your thinking, you would see it fuller. But what if you could see things like I see things? This would all make sense. Would you just be humble, give people the grace to journey, and be replications of me? That is the bigger issue. It's all about kindness and generosity. Don't tell me what you know about theology until the girl at KFC knows that you're saved even if she messes up your order. You need to see the marker trick. (laughs) That whether you're Joe and you believe it's the hand of Shane or whether you're Sally and you believe it's five dots, both take faith. Because you just don't know. And what we are called to be, we are not called to be the moral police for the whole world. What we are called to be is to be replications of Jesus Christ to the whole world. We are not called to be the moral police. We are called to be a group of people who are known to be compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, who meet other people's needs first. And in that, we will become ministers of the kingdom of God in a decision. And that takes faith, which is three things to the Hebrew people. Tefillah, Teshuvah, sedaka. That all across this world, people with white skin, people from Europe, and I can say this because I'm white. People with white skin, if you ask them, why will you go to heaven when you die? 99% of all of them will say this, because I believe in Jesus. There's a problem with that. Is there anybody in Hades, not Gehenna, anybody in Hades who believes in Jesus? Heaps. Heaps. The devil, all the angels, the demons, they all believe in Jesus, but yet they find themselves in Hades waiting to be thrown into the lake of fire. Belief in Jesus is never enough. Faith in Jesus is. And Hebrew faith versus Western belief are two different things. Hebrew faith is tefillah, teshuva, sedaka. I'm gonna leave it right there and we'll pick up right there tomorrow night on tefillah, teshuva, sedaka. Lord, would you um, seal something in us tonight that would make us closer to you. Lord, we proclaim that you are the king of the universe. You are. You're the king of the universe. Lord, you are the king of the universe and we are not. Would you just stop right where you are and be still and know that he is God. Be still and know that he is God. Lord, would you give us the faith to bind and loose only what you bound and loosed? To live your life, not to just believe it, but that it would be a yoke, that it would be a yoke. Not a system of beliefs, but a yoke, a way of living. May we be replications of you to this entire community. May we be a people who are known to be people who bring heaven to earth and leave hell to the wayside. We say death to Gehenna and hello to a life of bringing heaven to earth by putting other people first. Bless us tonight and bring us back tomorrow to challenge us and change us more. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much for um, letting me be your guest tonight. I hope you're blessed by that. Please come back tomorrow. Bring some friends. I promise you it's going to get better and better and better and better. We just laid some groundwork. It's going to get better and better and better. God bless you. I'll turn the service back on Fantastic. Come on, let's give Shane a big clap. That was absolutely brilliant. Don't forget to come back tomorrow night, and remember, tomorrow night we'll be taking up an offering, and uh, also check out his merchandise table, that'd be great.